Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. And remember, they've, they want to laugh. It's never the audience. You can find a different angle in. But just love the room. But love yourself first. Don't get on stage till you love yourself. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you all so much. As always, amazing. You guys are so supportive, so incredible. And I am just so incredibly grateful to you. It's much, much appreciated. All that you do, all the emails, all the texts, all the FedExes, just so, so humbling. And I'm so glad that you like the show and it means a lot. Thank you. And as always, I look at my guest and I never know what I'm going to say. And uh, this is no exception because my guest is Kirk Fox, an incredible, incredible comedian and actor and client of mine who I love dearly and I think the world of and think the world of his comedy and his talent and his intellect and It's hard sitting across from Kirk because he is such an incredible person to be next to. They always say that if you want to be a great tennis player, you got to play against the best. And coincidentally, Kirk Fox, world-class tennis player. But what I'm referring to is just being next to somebody who has an incredible wit, an incredible way about him. A guy who some of the greatest comedians in the world always love being around. And some of the greatest actors in the world, legendary, love to be around him as well. And some of the most iconic and most powerful television stars always want him to be around. And I think to myself, why do they want him to be around? Do they want him to be around because... He's simply a guy who's funny. Do they want him to be around because he's a guy who maybe is smart and witty? 
Do they want him around because he's a guy who's the most talented guy in the room on every occasion? I don't know what the answer is, but I will say this. There's something to be said for being that guy, the guy who it doesn't matter if it's a banker, a bum, a homeless guy, the biggest television or film star in the world or anywhere in between to have the ability to want people to have you in their life, to want you to be a part of their lives and the fabric of what they do, to want you to share the experience of the work that they take pride in. It's an amazing quality that Kirk Fox has, and he's always had it as long as I've known him. Always been a guy who the comedians respect, other actors respect, storytellers love, and just regular civilians. They find him to be engaging, charming, unique, and has a way about him that's incredibly original. And as long as I've known him, he's been that guy. You don't work with some of these people if you're not that guy. You could be the most talented guy or woman in the world, but if you don't know how to figure out how to navigate around these personalities, strong personalities, wherever you work, you're not going to get what you want and you're not going to get to the next level and you're not going to get more opportunities. People want to be around people that make them feel great, make them feel happy, make them feel like they're in the game, make them feel like they're witty and funny, but also know that they're sitting across from somebody who as at a higher level in many, many ways, but will never make them feel that way. And I think the answer is for most people in any situation you are, whatever profession you're in, that if you can be that person, if you can figure out how to be the person who takes the path of least resistance and creates these strong, wonderful relationships that last the test of time, these people will go to the wall for you. They'll fight for you. They'll push for you. They'll make the call. They'll help you get to the next level because you were everything that they wanted at the time that they wanted you. And if you can figure out how to be that kind of person, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of life and the kind of respected career that Kirk Fox has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Are you a better actor or better stand-up comedian? I'm only lately getting good at stand-up. I've always been able to get laughs, but only lately am I getting comfortable. Up, up until the last year, it was always pretty much a monologue. 
but I was a good enough actor where I could make it look like I was loose. But I'm never comfortable. Never really wanted to be there. Never talking about the shit I want to talk about. So you're a better actor? No, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm. I'm pretty good at being myself. I'm not a great actor. I'm good at being who I am. Could I do Shakespeare? Yeah, but it would take a lot of work. I'm good at just delivering a line. I'm great at adding my own lines. Are there comedians that you run into sometimes that stop into the clubs that you're happy for them? Like the other day I was somewhere, Louis Anderson came in and I was genuinely so happy for him because obviously there's tremendous ups and yeah, downs I love, in this business. I love Louis. And he gets on a show, we can't get an acting job the way he wants to get it anymore. So he's just relegated to doing stand-up in Las Vegas and sometimes in these rooms where Thunder Down Under was the opening act. And somebody like Louis C.K., just like the people who've gone out of the way for you in your career, who you know, and Zach said, this is the guy to play the mother and you get that opportunity and then magic happens. Are there people like that in the clubs that come in that you genuinely are happy for and there's something about them that you're just rooting for all the time? Or I got to be honest, I'm rooting for everybody I meet. Anyone I come across, I give them good thoughts. I'm always there to nudge them in the right direction if I can. I'll always listen. I'll, I'll always tag jokes. I'm, I'm happy for anybody who's trying to make a room laugh. I don't pinpoint anyone and say, man, I'm happy for, I'm, I'm happy for anyone that I come across. I'm just trying to love. I'm just trying to breathe it in and just just trying to be. Well, that's another thing about you that I've always found is that I've never met anybody in this career that didn't like you and didn't respect you. And I don't know if you feel like you have enemies or people in the club that you just rub you the wrong way, but I never... Even if you're being rubbed the wrong way, you're still being rubbed. <laughs> I have no problem with anybody. And if you have a problem with someone, the problem is with yourself for allowing someone to bother you. You know, something happened the other day that I want to share with you because you've been great to my kids and you taught them tennis and I'll never forget that day. And I wondered if I was being a good father or a bad father or what kind of person I was. We were driving up to school and there was construction and this woman said, you can't drive up to the classrooms and it's like a long walk. And my older son went toe to toe with her and said, how come we can't go in there? How come that car got to go? Why won't you let us through? Eight things in a row trying to get where he wanted to go. My other son just picked up his backpack, his bag, and ignored the difficulty of this woman and just started walking. And I didn't do anything. I didn't reprimand my son. I just observed him. And I thought to myself, God, who am I? I, th I just think it's easier to be kind. It just takes a lot less work. And I do whatever I can to 
not have to do too much work. And it's just the way, it's just the way I was raised. I mean, my dad, every day, you know, get out of bed, stand on your head, take a deep breath and say love. That was his, that was how he greeted the, his five children. Isn't it wonderful? What, what? When we as earth planet travelers become aware of our relativity with the great universal life force. That's how he, that's how he lived, man. He was a handyman, you know, down in Pacific beach, worked in La Jolla. They all liked him in La Jolla, all the rich people. We never had money, but they liked having him around. And it's the same way I've lived. I've always, I've always been country club. I've always liked rich people and they've always liked having me around. And I, I think it was just instilled in me because Pacific Beach, we go up to La Jolla. That's why I play tennis and golf. I just, I'm country club, man. And, and I'm okay with it because I, I can be, you know, I can be broke also. Most of the money I make, I give away. I just, I just would rather give it to others. I remember you telling me a story where at the coffee meet or wherever it was, you'd bring these beautiful shirts down to this homeless guy. That was my favorite thing because handsome Ron, <laughs> I saw him actually recently again. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I gave him a bag of clothes once, real nice bag of clothing. And I saw him a few months later and and he had just kept the bag. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, where's all those shirts? He's like, oh, shit. I, I thought it was just to show me the shape of the bag. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that makes sense. Because I remember as a kid, we would just, we'd, we'd get a box with a toy in there. And we would just play in the box. But then I also, one time I gave him $3. And then I saw him a... A month later, and he came up to me and he handed me $3. I said, Ron, what, what's that? And he's like, you know, you gave me three bucks, you know, a few weeks ago or a month ago. I was like, hey, man, it, you know, it wasn't a loan. He's like, I needed it just to get back on my feet. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I was like, are you still homeless? He's like, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? Where were you starting? <laughs> Where were you starting from if it took you $3 to get back to homeless? <laughs> Man, that's handsome Ron. And I, I hadn't seen him in, I hadn't seen him in a while. And the great thing is, this guy's beautiful. But... Do you, do you think all homeless guys get action? Oh, this guy does. This guy is a masseuse. He's so, even got a table. So he takes... <laughs> <laughs> so he takes the girls back to where? I'm sure he goes there, wherever there. But for a long time when I was playing tennis with, with uh, Phil, with Dr. Phil, there was always a lot of food laid out. <laughs> and he'd always give me a lot to take. And I never told him, but on the way home, I there was a bunch of homeless that I fed every night. They'd wait for me at a certain corner. But not all of it, Dr. Phil, but there was so much you made me take <laughs> that there was no way I could eat it all, especially when I would restock the next day. You said you've always loved being around rich 
people. But rich people love being around you. Well, because I never ask for anything and I'm funny and I'm a nice guy. I've never wanted anything. So, but it's always tennis, you know, teaching tennis. You know, you give a billionaire a backhand, it's a pretty big thing. But every movie I ever got was through tennis. My first 15 or 20. Tennis anyone that came from tennis? Of course. You made that movie with Donald. Yeah, but Donald, but, but Donald and I were playing tennis and our friendship, the whole thing was came from tennis. You wrote that movie with him. Yeah. We've never said I wasn't capable of writing. I wrote Polly Shore's Dead also. I mean, I can complete a script, but uh, oh, I can write. I, I have some scripts. Just not big on finishing. My career is the slow play. I want to go way back. We'll go let's as far go, as you need, let's man. Let's go back to the San Diego area. Your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, what it was like, and what was the first inspiration to get into this crazy business? There was no inspiration to get into this business. I went to college and I was going to play tennis. And then when I came to Hollywood after college, I was just teaching tennis. Well, how did you get into tennis? Why tennis? Your dad wasn't playing tennis. Your brothers and sisters weren't playing tennis. I liked it. It was solitary. I saw a tennis racket and a, a tennis ball and there was a garage door next door. And I just started hitting the tennis ball against that garage door. I liked the sound it made. I liked the thump. I liked that I could do it by myself. I could always find a wall. And then uh, my mom would bake bread every Sunday. And I would take a loaf of bread down to the Pacific Beach Rec Center. There was a guy there named Dave Rath. Not the manager, but Dave Rath was a, a tennis pro down in San Diego. He had half a thumb. He had lost that thumb at a construction site when he was younger. But I would give him a loaf of bread every Sunday and that got me a few tennis lessons during the week. He liked that home cooking. When someone wouldn't show up, I would get the tennis lesson. So I was playing tennis and baseball, soccer. I'm an athlete. When did you know you were better at tennis than the other kids? Well, I always knew that I was pretty good. I was tough to beat. So did you start having aspirations of thinking I could parlay this into a scholarship at college? No, I was just uh, I was just having fun, man. My whole life has just been chasing girls and laughing and not working too hard. I could have worked harder at tennis. I didn't train very hard. I was just floating. So you don't get a scholarship to play tennis in college or you do? Uh, there were there was offers, but I went to UC San Diego. Because my sister filled out the filled out the application because she had gone there. It was easy. I just took whatever was easy. Okay, so how do you get to the point where you start beating everybody in tennis? Obviously, I would beat most of them, but for some reason, I was clearly not beating who I should have been beating. I just did not have the work ethic. And there was some mental weakness. I didn't have the killer instinct. Probably didn't have a good enough backhand back then in between. But you were getting to the point where you saw that you were closing in on some worldwide rankings. Yeah, but once again, it's tough. Tough to win. 
it's got to be your whole life. And it was never my whole life. You got to train eight hours a day. You got to be, you got to spend a couple hundred grand out there traveling, playing these tournaments. It's not cheap. If you had to do it all over again, I could put you back right then knowing what you know now, what would you do? The exact same thing. I had so much fun. There's no one has had a better life than I have. Were you the kind of guy who would be out all night trying to get a girl and you'd be late to the tennis tournament? No, I knew enough to show up. I was always responsible. I, I'd show up for when I have to work. When I have to work, I'm, I'm on time. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back? It was just a, a slow fade, a slow fade to black. I came to I came to LA and just I had my basket of tennis balls and I just started teaching tennis and blinked and 10 years went by. I didn't start stand up till deep in my 30s. But how did you get to that point where you wanted to act or do stand up? I st I got to be honest with you. I'm still not at that point. But you have to step on a stage and there has to be inspiration to get there. Well, I I I'm enjoying you mean what made me want to do stand-up comedy? The first time, yeah. Because there was nothing left. I needed something to do at night. My life hadn't begun yet. I was funny. I'd, I'd written that movie with Polly Shore. Uh, and I'd always, I'd been hanging around with Polly for five years at the comedy store, but not doing stand-up. Maybe for 10 years, I was friends with Polly. He'd go on the road, I'd go with him, I'd write, you know, I'd write jokes, I'd give him jokes and they'd get laughs. And eventually I was like, man, I should try this. So November 10th, 2002, I went on stage at the comedy store. How did it go? Well, it was three minutes and there was no laughs until the end when I said this was funny in front of the mirror. <laughs> and then and then they laughed and I was like, oh, I get it. But that was my first time on stage, November 10th, 2002. And the other night was number 3000. And my 3000th time, Kevin Hart brought me up at the comedy store last week. He popped in and did a half hour and then brought me up. And it was, I was okay with it. I mean, it was a seamless transition and they kept laughing and it's just jokes. I didn't, I didn't let it phase me. I mean, he's one of the biggest in the world. But once he was off that stage, then it was my turn and it's just a different chapter. When you're about to go on stage and they're just about to introduce you and then somebody says, hey, there's a special guest and he goes on. I know you're not a fearful person. I like to get to the comedy store and go on. The longer I wait, the more I I just get squirrely. The best part of the Kevin Hart was is when I went up, I guess when I was going up and my phone must have fallen out because then as I started talking, he's like, Kirk. And then he came up and he gave me my phone back. And I was like, man, I can't believe, you know, and he's a pickpocket. <laughs> I mean, Kevin, is it that necessary? I mean, he's quick. He's small. He was, he's right at pocket level. <laughs> and I got a big laugh and he laughed. And then it was from that moment, it was fine. But you never know. Because you took the risk going you, after Goliath and it worked. I was just open. I think the key to anything is just... You just want to be open. You take a risk. You call a African-American man a pickpocket. Well, I wasn't thinking that. 
I just thought, you know. And so you take the risk, you go toe-to-toe, and it works. I don't even think Kevin's an African-American. <laughs> He's just a man. I don't see color. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, but that was number 3,000, and I'm just getting comfy. So what am I, how many years in? 14? You know, when when I was starting, all my peers were 15 years in, so... I feel fine where I'm at. Was there a gig that you got before you did stand-up that wasn't because of tennis? No. And it was funny. I, I'll tell you this, which is, which is a real funny story, is I had never gotten to audition for a sitcom. But as soon as I started doing stand-up, you know, I, I had some friends at UTA that were just kind of hip-pocketing me because I was teaching tennis to Peter Benedict and Jay Suris. So these guys were always, you know, taking care of me because I fixed their tennis, but we we're all friends. And there was an audition for this show called Rodney. That was Rodney Carrington. Yeah, and it was my first sitcom audition. And they're like, they're only looking at stand-ups. I'm like, tell them I'm a stand-up. And I think I'd been doing stand-up for a year, maybe. And I went in there and I got it. I got, I got that job because they thought I was, a, they heard I was a stand-up. But I booked the job. And then he's like, hey man, why don't you come out and open for me? And I'm like, okay. And I didn't realize who Rodney Carrington was. And for those of you who don't know, Rodney Carrington is just kind of an anomaly because there's parts of the South where he works and he can sell out theaters and... Arenas. It, w it went from... We jumped on his own. He, you know, he flies on his own jet and he says, hey, you want to come over for me? We're doing a few gigs. I'm like, yeah. He's probably the most successful comedian that most people have never heard of as much as they should. But I went from open mics... Like the night before I did an open mic with 10 people and I loved open mics. I mean, I still, I just, I was having fun at the time. And then I went from 10 people to 4,000 the next night and my jokes were still working, but I don't, maybe I'd only been doing it six months, but that was, but that was good. That was when that's that was when I started stand up. So that was my first road gig was four thousand people. One of my favorite lines that you ever said to me off stage. You got the gig opening up for Charlie Sheen when he was going through that difficult time, and I called you up because somebody called me and said that you had a difficult time on a show, and they sent a link to a theater show that you did. And I said, Kirk, man, this is a rough gig. It looks like you got booed off the stage. And you looked at me and you said, that is a complete falsehood. I got booed on stage. Off stage, everyone was very kind. <laughs> but I didn't even mind that because uh, I, I knew going in, it was, I told Charlie, I'm like, this could go either way. <laughs> but... At one point, there was 4,000 people booing, and I knew the place held 5,000. And I said, come on, man, where's the other 1,000? And then they all booed. But I, I still did my 20 minutes. So 10 minutes in, Charlie came out and gave me a Hershey's chocolate kiss. <laughs> he thought that might help, but it didn't help that they saw him. But he eventually got booed off as well.
They were booing me before I even opened my mouth. So I, I didn't take it personally. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I had a real rough, a real rough set in 2008 on stage where it may have been a, a complete anxiety or a panic attack, but where I froze and couldn't speak three minutes in to a set of comedy. And that, that changed a lot for me. That was my first failure in life. Up until that moment, I'd never had a failure. The night had started at the improv and it was a showcase for uh, Letterman. And for some reason, things were just starting to come to a head or just something in my mind, but I just wasn't liking who I was on stage. I just, I was starting to feel like a character. I'd had a shitload of success, but I never felt like I was just who I was. I just was never happy. And so that night at the improv, someone came up to me and someone said, oh man, I love that character you're doing. And that kind of started my head spinning. And I went up on stage and I didn't tell a joke, but I got a lot of laughs. But then Eddie Brill was like, listen, you got to come back and at least do some jokes. Eddie Brill was booking the Letterman show at the time. And then after that, I called up to the comedy store because I had a spot up there. And uh, Tommy, who was the booker at the time, he says, oh, if, if you get up here right now, you, you can slide on. My spot, my spot was late, 1130. And he said, if you can come up now, you get on at maybe 10. And you always want to go up when you can. But I knew I was, should have eaten. I always like to have food in me because I, I just need food. But I went right up to the comedy store. And by the time I got there, everyone had showed up. So then I had to wait. Tim Allen was there. And I had just, I was, I was up for a part in his movie. And they had just given it to someone else. It came down to me and another guy. But Tim was there. And he's like, oh, sorry it didn't work out. I'm like, that's all right. All good. And I, I just felt something was off as I was sitting back there waiting for my spot. And then uh, I saw Sebastian go up. Sebastian Maniscalco. And kill. And I was just like, man, he's just talking about real shit, man. I love, I just loved him. And I started thinking about my jokes and they were just jokes. And then finally I went up on stage and right as I started talking, someone in the front row went, ha, ha, ha. And it just kind of triggered something in me. And I started spending too much time with this guy. I'm like, are, are you, did I say something? Ha, ha, okay. So I started telling my jokes. And this guy kept doing that. And I eventually had him thrown out. And then I said something else. And then someone in the back said, you're projecting. And I was, it was the, the most precise heckle. And then the room just started spinning and I felt like I was going to pass out. And I said, Tommy, who's next? And what? 
so, you know, they frantically started to find the other comic. And they brought up Steve Renazizi, another comedian. And that whole thing took three minutes instead of a 15-minute set. And that moment, that was in 2008, September 11th, that changed me for a, a few, a couple of years because I always knew, that, I always thought that, I always knew it could happen again. So I had to figure out what was causing that much self-hate. And that, that was a, that was a big, that was a rough night, but it, it made me who I am now because it made me have to find out who Kirk Fox is and for a while, I, I just blamed it on not eating. But it was much deeper. But my whole life, I mean, my first failure was, shit, man. How old was I then? I was, I was at least 40. So I had a midlife crisis at 40. You know, six years in. But I had had no failures up until then. No bad sets. I'd killed every time. And then that happened. And the moment that happened, I had doubt. And I think it's okay to have doubt. It makes you realize you're human. It makes you feel. So, so that was it. I can pinpoint when I started realizing I had to change, become a better person. I'd been pretty selfish up till then. My whole life had only been about me. What advice would you have for the young person in comedy wants to be an actor, wants to be a comedian, doesn't even have any dreams of it, it just happens, and how do you get to the kind of point in their career where they can sort of have the kind of material that you have, the kind of respect you have? Trust that you're enough. Get on stage as much as you can. Hand the jokes off on a pillow. Don't shove them down an audience's throat. The mic will help you. Pretend like you're selling a 911 Porsche. You don't have to work too hard. You want to be able to just talk, I think. And then if you need to, you can add a little bit as long as it's who you are. And you'll save a lot of time if you come out of the gate being okay with silence. And remember, they've, they want to laugh. It's never the audience. You can find a different angle in. But just love the room. But love yourself first. Don't get on stage till you love yourself. It's not fair to them. And eat a burger. Eat a burger before you go on. That's all. Kirk Fox, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Barry. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. 
He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, till it all feels.
feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.